Welcome to the Passive Income MD Podcast, where we talk about creating your ideal life through multiple streams of income. I'm your host, Peter Kim. If you enjoy hearing about this stuff, make sure to hit subscribe so I can bring it to you every week. Now let's get on with the show. Hey, everyone. Uh, Today's going to be a great interview. We're so lucky to have Tim Wallen. He is the CEO of MLG Capital. If you've been part of my world for any amount of time, whether you've been on the blog or the Facebook groups, there's no doubt you've heard of MLG, MLG Capital, but we're going to talk a little bit more about what it is today. I mean, I can tell you that currently they own and operate over 20,000 units. They've been in operation for more than 33 years, and the market value of the properties is over $2.5 billion. So they obviously know what they're doing, uh, but we're excited to have uh, the head honcho here right now. Tim, how are you doing? Peter, I'm doing good. Thanks for getting together. Yeah, I mean, we've talked before, but it was in different times. So I'd love to kind of talk a little bit more about um, the perspective you have right now and what's going on, but let's start from the beginning. Tell us a little bit about your background and ultimately how you ended up at MLG. Well, I've been living and breathing the real estate thing for, my gosh, about 30, 30, 32 years now. They're actually really 35 years now with my public accounting experience, but I came in the, in, the, in the real estate world uh, through Price Waterhouse. I was a tax manager with Price out in San Francisco. I grew up in Wisconsin, did that rubber band thing, went to California for a number of years, then moved back to Wisconsin. But when I came back from uh, San Francisco back to Wisconsin, I had MLG as my client and I spent uh, about a year working with them. And then I joined them as a, the CFO and a smaller partner back in uh, 1989. And then I took over the leadership role as a CEO in the year 2000. So I've been with MLG for roughly 31 years, uh, again, living and breathing real estate and tax and all the things that go with it for that whole time. Now, what did it look like back there in 89 when you took over to what it looks like now? I mean, how have you seen it grow and change? Yeah, you know, it's uh, obviously very different. I was a very entrepreneurial company when I, when I came back from San Francisco. Uh, they had like 10 to 12 people at the time. Today, we're roughly 500 people in the organization. Now today we, uh, you know, we have, you know, we have nine, what, eight CPAs and staff, four attorneys, land planners, engineers, accountants, all the people that work super hard on our properties and all the local regional managers and all the maintenance guys. And uh, we are very deep bench of talent, you know, throughout our organization now. And just tell us a little bit about what you focus on and who are the people that you actually serve and help? Well, uh, we're, we're very unique in our industry. Um, most real estate guys, they have their niche. They might be a multifamily guy in the upper Midwest or just Milwaukee, Wisconsin, or they're in the Southeast or they're in Texas or they're in Arizona, or they're maybe a retail guy doing stuff. Um, very niche What makes us unique is we're, we're an operator in Wisconsin, Texas, and Florida. You mentioned the 20,000 units that we manage and oversee. Um, but we also are what I would describe, um, and let me clarify that. We also, you know, we fix toilets, we shovel snow, we cut grass, we deal with all the tenant complaints and all the opportunities to make places better, a better place for them to live. But we're also unique in that we um, really are like a private equity firm. We actually proactively invest with other real estate operators around the country. So to, to bring that home to you, there's roughly 60 different real estate guys, say, for example, in Minneapolis that we talk to about their deals and, you know, a couple of guys in Minneapolis and we're willing to invest in that local guy. So Around the country, we have well over a thousand real estate companies that we talk to about their deals. And we're looking to invest in one or two of those a month. Uh, we see about 60 or 70 opportunities a month from other real estate operators. 
So in addition to being a vertically integrated real estate operator, we're really a JV equity partner for other real estate guys around the country. Uh, and we did that, you know, we could have opened up other offices around the country, but my viewpoint is so hard to get talent and so hard to, to get somebody to say, I'm going to have all these great relationships in Nashville or Minneapolis or Denver or Phoenix and all these markets. And somehow I'm going to be an expert in a matter of seconds by hiring one person. You know, my viewpoint, we were better off to partner with the local guy that's been there for you know, 10, 20, 30 years and parlay off their strengths and their relationships. So, and then we look at investing in deals that we think make great sense. So our investors get the benefit, not only of our direct markets, the Wisconsin, Texas, and Florida, we get the benefit of us traveling the country, you know, late nights, planes, hotels, trying to find the best deals possible for our investors nationwide. Yeah. And how has that worked out for you, especially in this time right now, having that diversification of kind of where your investments are not fully like kind of localized in one area. How have you seen it now that's spread all across the country? Well, I mean, I think, I mean, like anything in life, diversification is big to managing risk. Um, and so if we build this basket, typical fund will have 30 to 35 properties in it. So if we build this basket of assets around the country, much less risky than, you know, finding some you know, cost, you know, crowdfunding deals on the internet in one location and you put your money into one deal in, in Phoenix and it might be a great deal and it might work out great, but just like stock markets, right? Right now, you know, individual stocks are more risky than, than buying a basket of stocks. And our belief is uh, many people in private real estate, they make that mistake of not getting diversified. I myself, you know, did all individual syndications and I changed that in 2012 and started rolling into the fund structure because I just thought that was a better structure for the investors. It's actually worse for us economically. We made more money on individual syndications than we do in the fund structure um, because any deal that underperforms, the good deals have to pay for the deals that underperform in a fund structure, whereas individual syndications, that is not the case. Okay, now that I have you here, let's dive into some of the specifics because I think there are a lot of people here who are listening to this for the first time. They might understand the concept of, you know, investing in a single apartment. You see, mm -hmm. you, you know, you can touch it. You know exactly what you're investing in. Let's talk about how it works really quickly in terms of sure. like your investment when it goes in. What does it look like overall structure-wise? So in, in, a, in a fund structure, and they all can be structured differently, but I'll talk generically how most are structured. Most funds are structured with a real estate company like MLG has the discretion to decide what to invest in. So you're saying, hey, rather than me make the decision to invest and pick assets, I let you real estate guy go pick the best deals possible. I'm going to trust you to do that. Now, we have the benefit of have, having over 30-year history of performance that we can demonstrate and we can show the discipline that we've had over a long, long period of time. But again, you're, you're, you're giving that control, just like you know, having a money manager or buying a mutual fund or, or you, you're, you're giving somebody else the ability to make that decision for you versus you making it yourself. So you're trusting that expert to make wise choices on your behalf. So how do you know how to trust somebody in that perspective? Let's say somebody's coming into this pretty fresh in you. Mm -hmm. How do you do the proper due diligence to make sure that you're investing with the right person? Well, you know, for, for the average person coming in and looking at investing in funds with real estate folks, I mean, you should ask for the performance history. You should ask, and we're transparent. We'll show you every deal we've ever invested in if you want to ask. And we, we have that track record available. And for example, in our, our history, you know, our average return, $1 of equity turns into $2.30 on average. That's before promotes and fee structures. But in general, we have a long history of taking $1 and growing it to over $2 and, and have a history of doing that very consistently over a long period of time. So you know, most guys should be willing to give that to you. If they're not willing to give it to you, 
that's a red flag for you. Yeah. So what, what other questions can we ask besides the track record? Um, I'm sure that when you deal with all these operators in different areas, um, you're doing your, your due diligence, right? On our behalf. That's right. What other things are you asking for besides track record? Well, we, we, I'm sure we dive a lot harder than any investor would normally would. We almost look at uh, when we talk to a real estate sponsor, almost like a banquet underwrite somebody. So we get their whole portfolio of real estate owned. Now, now most real estate guys aren't going to want to give you that. But because we're typically 80 or 90% of the equity of a deal, we do get access to that. Uh, but we ask for the, all the, the current portfolio. When we're looking for, is there any problem spots? Do they have any troubled assets? Because, you know, when people are in trouble, you know, people tend to make poorer decisions. And so we like to see if there's trouble spots and understand that. Um, so again, peeling back the onion, what exactly do you have? How the assets performing? and really understanding the team. I also think it's really important to look at the management team and the depth. Now, we look real close at all the different functions. There's all the reporting functions, like the controller function, the treasury function, where you're managing cash, you're overseeing the financial reporting. You know, what does that reporting look like? Okay, who actually in your shop actually does that? And you know, we've had real estate deals that we invested with where we peel back that onion and go, these guys do not have the strong financial strength. They're, they're smart real estate guys. They're savvy, street smart, but they really lack that deep, you know, controller function of watching over the books and records and stuff. So we've had deals where we actually let the real estate guy do the property management side, but we retain hundred percent of the treasury and controller function. Cause for us nationwide, the 20,000 apartments that you mentioned that we, that we manage, um, we do the accounting nationwide right here in, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin for all those assets right here. I don't do centralized accounting. So, you know, I, I have nine CPAs on staff. Now that's not normal. Okay. That most firms don't have that. And that's more driven by the fact that we're really an investment banking firm. That's private equity firm investing in other folks. I need to have that depth of talent. It also allows us to do some pretty great tax stuff. So you have to look back, you know, who's doing asset management, what's their policies, uh, what's their process? Okay, you know, are they reviewing the financials monthly? How are they tracking their CapEx budgets, their operating budgets? Um, you know, just disciplines of operations you know, and understanding the people that are responsible for that. So we do that kind of dive when we're investing with, with a real estate guy, trying to understand their team. We also look at, you know, what's the risk of departure of key talent uh, and understanding what's the depth of, if one or two people leave, do they have much of a bench behind them? And in overall, so and also we also look at the amount of leverage people take on. And our belief is lower leverage is smarter. Uh, you know, our target leverage is only sixty-five percent. Many guys do max leverage. And again, you go through something like COVID here recently. Can they withstand uh, a COVID impact? You know, if, if things got really bad, how is their portfolio going to look, and how are they going to perform? So we peel back that onion farther than I think the average investor would really be able to. Uh, just because of our position of being, you know, 80 to 90% of the equity in most deals that we invest in. Now, you mentioned the time of COVID. How's MLG doing right now in, in the time of COVID, uh, dealing with all of this? You know, I, I think it's just about uh, being smart, being real about what, what environment you're in. Um, you know, overall, um, you know, we're, we're only off about 3% in collections um, from COVID impact. So we've been averaging about 90, uh, I'd say two to 3%. So we're, we're averaging about 96% collections. You know, when we say collections in the real estate business, even last year, we might've been 98% collected because you also have some people that don't pay, right? I mean, in any, any, any environment, you have people that don't pay. So we're really talking about a 2% increase or so of non-payment from impacted from COVID, which honestly is less than I thought. I, when we underwrote, we actually looked at 
What if we don't collect 20%? What if we don't collect 25% because of COVID? You know, back in April, we were running those kind of math gymnastics because we understand, uh, you know, in our portfolio, because of our lower leverage point, we could handle collection drops of 25, you know, up to 30% on the assets uh, and still pay all of our bills just fine. Again, because we have lower leverage than much of our industry. Do you see right now, obviously we're still in the, in the thick of it, and I know yep. that people are talking about all sorts of things or stimulus money might run out. We're still going to be going for a while. Do you think that there are things to be even more cautious about in the future in the next six months, 12 months? Well, I will say in general, I view it to be a temporary condition. I, I do think there's permanent job loss here. Okay. So I don't want to understate that. We're already back to like 8.4% uh, unemployment here. We snapped back pretty quickly from, I think they got the 14% at its peak. I just have some reference, 2010, your unemployment got up to 10%. So we went past you know, the Great Recession unemployment numbers, but we're already back below that, um, 8.4. So the way we're looking at stuff, we're expecting recovery in general at, by the end of 2021. Uh, so we expect a bit of a slow grind to now and then. Uh, we got to get through the COVID issue. We got to get through the COVID scare. We got to have some vaccines. We got to have more therapeutic type stuff. So when you're doing your planning, and you're doing your underwriting to buy stuff. Right now, we have roughly almost 55 million of deals to, to, to acquire right now. Uh, but all those just go, we got off market. The key to that is, are you being real about your assumptions? You know, you know if, if I was believing by the end of 2021 and three months from now, we'd be back to normal, I'd be nuts. You know? So you just got to be real about what you're assuming, and whether it be from an operational perspective or from a new acquisition perspective. Just be real. It will pass. It's a challenging time for many, but it will pass. Um, and it does create opportunities uh, that you can take advantage of. Now, what are you telling investors right now when they're thinking about investing with you? When you mean setting expectations correctly, what are you, what are you letting them know? That returns just might be a little bit uh, less than maybe they expected a couple of years ago? Is it going to take longer to get your money back? Is it, you know, what, what are you telling them in terms of expectations for how to invest during this time and what, what it'll look like? Well, it's kind of a really interesting environment because you're, what you're navigating, uh, there's so much money out there right now. And with, with all the government stimulus, the stock market growing, there's just so much money out there. You know, interest rates are near zero. Yep, but you can buy real estate and you can buy multifamily real estate and produce, let's call it a, I'd say four and a half, five percent is probably real. Uh, you know, there's some deals we look at, we can produce a six, but I say right now the expectation is more five or 6% cash on cash yield, something like that. I think that's a deliverable. Uh, but, you know, I tell you, it's competitive out there. When people are out trying to buy stuff and we're competing against other buyers, it is really competitive. All five deals that we're working on right now are all off market where we didn't compete against anybody to buy those assets. We've been having a hard time competing on market deals just because it's just so much money out there overall. So I would say the bottom line is what to expect, more modest cash on cash yields in the context of multifamily. And it, it will be more modest, but it will get better. Um, and I think there's opportunities. Uh, you do have to be cautious on the, on the buy side uh, and you gotta be real assumptions. If you're real, uh, I think things can work out well for anybody buying you know, multifamily. I mean, the reference point that a lot of people have is 2008 to 2010. You know, they talk about that recession and how it was so bad for real estate. All these prices drop. A lot of people lost a lot, you know, a lot of money. How do you see today different? Because you guys have been through multiple cycles. So yeah. how is this one different from 2008 to 2010? Is the same type of sentiment? Well, you know, the 2000, you know, the Great Recession, 2009, uh, 8, 9, 10, uh, that was a slow grind down. You had true 
fracturing in the banking industry. The banking industry was in trouble. You had true fundamental challenges. So you had this slow grind from, it was about 4.4% unemployment in the, like 2007, and you bottom about 10% unemployment. Well, what's crazy about this cycle, we had 50 year lows of unemployment back, you know, just eight months ago, right? You were at three and a half percent unemployment and you catapulted up to 14% unemployment in a matter of months. So it's a, a forced government shutdown, you know, forced government you know, recession. And so it's very, very different fact pattern. You came into this with a lot of strength. So it does give you a better cushion and the banks were very healthy uh, and less leverage coming into this as well. So much more able to see a snapback being quickly. I still think it's gonna be relatively modest. It's not gonna be a slow grind back like it was from 2008, nine, because there were systemic problems in the financial industry. Um, and we had to work through that and we had to strengthen the banking system. Um, and we don't have that, that fact pattern right now. So it's just a matter of when people get past the fear of COVID and live life again, um, and it's and good reasons to have fear, but we have to get through that as a country. And once we get through that as a country, um, I think things will snap back. I think people start traveling again. It'll recover quite quickly at some point. Our underwriting, we're, not, we're, we're looking at 2022 for that to really start happening. I mean, you guys invest in not only multifamily, but in some other sectors as well, right? Other fields. Mm -hmm. And so how have you seen the difference between multifamily and maybe something like industrial or something like that? Sure. Well, when we look at all asset classes, there's a fundamental concept um, of, of the basics of demand and supply. And sometimes people can overcomplicate it or overthink it, but in, let's, talk, let's talk multifamily once real quickly. So, you know, multifamily story, anything you do, right? If you have too much supply versus demand or whatever, you're gonna be in trouble. If you have too much supply versus demand, your prices are gonna fall, basic economics, right? Whereas if you got great demand versus supply, things are gonna be really good. You got pricing power and all that kind of stuff. So you have to just keep it simple from that perspective. So if you look at multifamily, the fundamentals of demand and supply are very sound. If you look at the demand side, you got you know, aging population, student loan, you know, housing prices are up 57% in the last eight years, rents are up 38%. Affordability is an issue. Unfortunately, you have higher divorce rates. You have people who get married later in life. Uh, you have pure population. I mean, you're, you, we talked earlier that you, you're in the OB area of medicine and people keep having babies, right? The population growth. So we average about seven tenths of a percent of population growth every year. So you get a built-in demand generator that's real. And the interesting thing is household formation, which is all those things I just talked about, aging population, student loan debt, all those kinds of things that impacted people's ability to, to go into housing. Household formation is at 1.09% whereas population growth is at 0.7%. So what that means is you're actually creating new homes, home demand, housing, single family, multifamily, at a rate 50% higher than population growth because of all these other factors. So the demand side of multifamily is super intact. Supply side, the interesting thing here, the one impact of COVID that people don't think about is that you're gonna have less supply created because banks are getting tighter, right? When you have a COVID environment, they fear, that fear means the lenders aren't gonna lend as much, the developers aren't going to take as much risk. So you're going to have all these things of slower supply growth. But yet the demand side, everything I mentioned, none of that stopped. Frankly, people probably have more babies right now, right? You know, with all this time alone. And uh, so you have demand side of this thing is fully intact and yet supply side is going to be slowed. So when this does snap back, multifamily solid. Industrial has major things in its favor as well. 
I know the United States has low energy costs, which is big. You're seeing this trend for jobs repatriating back to the United States. We have jobs coming back to the States. So there's good things happening there. You know, this e-commerce trend in, in retail is a big demand generator for industrial. A lot of these companies, like think about Amazon, these massive warehouses are being built and, and the logistics spaces, a lot of demand space in, on the industrial side. So the demand side of industrial is very much intact. I will say you have to be a little careful on the supply side of industrial. It is not hard to buy land and slap up a building and, and, and say, here, building, they shall come in industrial development. So you do have to watch when you're buying industrial, what's the risk of new construction around you? Now, multifamily is like 95.5% occupied nationwide. Industrial is about 94.5% occupied nationwide. So both pretty solid. Industrial and multifamily are our two favorite asset classes, very investable, but you have to be careful about the supply side growth on a local, a local basis overall. I'll do a quick snip on office and retail. We do invest in office and retail. Uh, unfortunately, we have, we have none in, in our current fund number four because it's been hard to find those deals that make any sense. When we buy retail and we buy office, uh, let me just talk one at a time because I'll confuse the market. So let's talk retail first. Now, I'll surprise you by the statistic. Retail, um, actually, I'll, I'll have fun with you. So what do you think retail is occupied nationwide, Peter? You know, you, you, know, you said multifamily, industrial, multifamily, about 95.5%, multifamily, 94.5% industrial. What do you think retail is occupied nationwide right now? My gut reaction outside, is- Outside the malls. Yeah, my, my gut reaction is lower. I mean, it's- right. Yeah, I mean, especially with what's going on right now. I, I, I don't know, personally, when I'm driving around, I feel like retail's uh, occupancy is low. Right. So big picture, 95% nationwide outside of malls. And so, and that statistic surprises people. But what, what people don't understand is the, the supply side. Again, when we talk about population growth for multifamily, we've had that seven-tenths of population growth every year. People buy stuff, right? So in 10 years' time, you've had population grow 7% about roughly in the last 10 years. Amazon's only 5% of the retail marketplace. Now, Amazon's been a monster, right? And everybody knows Amazon's eaten a lot of guys' lunch. But the reality is the rest of the retailers aren't going to land in the back and say, hey, Amazon, you get it all. They're fighting for their lives. So the retail guy is fighting pretty hard. The problem with retail is changes afoot. There's a lot of changes. There's concepts that are failing. There's new concepts coming in. There's existing tenants that have to change the way they do business. And change is expensive for real estate guys. Our viewpoint is you can't buy stabilized retail and make good money. So I don't want to buy a fully occupied retail center, even if it's a great location, because the market, in my viewpoint, doesn't price in the cost of that change risk. And as tenants come and go, it's very expensive to redesign space and cut it up. So I like buying retail in a great location that has temporary availability of space because some tenant fails. And if it's a great location, I believe we'll lease it back up again. But as soon as we lease that baby up, I'm going to sell it and run. Anything retail, buy the problem, fix the problem, sell it, cast the register, bring the register, win, take your win and go and buy something else. So mm. you, we won't buy retail stabilized. Office is a little different. Office has got systemic long-term occupancy problems. And it's really because yeah. they have problems on both the demand side and the supply side. On the demand side of office, you know, there's this trend to less square feet per person, per employee. And, and certainly with the whole Zoom factor and COVID, it's accelerated that this concept of working from home. Now, I do think we are social beings and I do think people want to be together. 
And so, and I think it's really hard to build corporate culture working remotely. So I think like, you know, you have a relationship with your current employees. It's okay to maintain that for a while over time, but you know, you're hiring that new employee or you're trying to mentor some other person or trying to grow managers. I think people need and want that social interaction. So I'm still a big believer that the office market is an investable asset class and it'll be okay. The problem is more on the supply side is that people keep building it. And even though it might not necessarily be new, for example, I call it the, the CEO ego problem. And um, many CEOs will build that new office building because they want the sexy new place to walk into work every day because this is where they spend a lot of time in life. So they want this cool space. Part of it, they do it because they want to have an attractive place to attract their employees. But the problem is they're going to leave some space behind some old stuff built in the 80s and 90s, and it's not, not cool anymore. And so they, they leave behind supply because they're going to build this new sexy building. They didn't necessarily need more space. They might be building a smaller building. They might be doing something different. But so supply gets created, even though there really isn't need for that physical space. And, and so it creates a systemic supply growth problem. And it combined with some, some fall off in demand. I don't think the demand fall off in office is going to be as great as some people predict, because I think we are social beings and people want to be together. So I'm, I'm not in the camp that office is dying from the demand side. I think the problem is really more on the supply side. So like nationwide office is about 90% occupied. And I don't think that gets better. I, I think it's going to bubble around. And I think you're going to have systemic vacancy problems because of, um, you know, people build new when they really don't need to. Wow. So that's a great a, market summer. Yeah, that's it. In a nutshell. Thanks so much. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's, that's, that's a high level overall. So, I mean, the COVID impacts, I think, are all yeah. temporary impacts in those asset classes. But you know, those are how we look at stuff. So office and retail are merchant asset classes. Buy a problem that you think you can fix, lease it up, sell the asset. Don't buy stabilized office and retail. And that's our viewpoint. Now, many people buy that stuff and it works out. It's high risk. If you buy an office building, retail building, and the anchor tenant leaves, mm -hmm. it is super expensive and very difficult to recover from that loss. I mean, one of the things I want to hone in on, because you mentioned it, and you're considering your background in tax, you mentioned you have all these CPAs on staff. And you mm -hmm. said, so you can do some really cool things with taxes. I think with uh, a lot of the people that are investing in this, you know, high net worth individuals, especially physicians, they really are concerned about the tax benefits. Uh, that, yeah. That's a big issue for them. They want it. That's a big benefit. So what are some of those tax benefits that, um, you know, we can take advantage of when investing in private real estate? What are you setting up through having all these CPAs? And what does that look like for the average investor? Well, you know, there's... Um, Again, I, I was a tax minister at Pricewaterhouse and I've been living and breathing. I, I hate paying income taxes. Uh, I like paying cap. I don't mind paying cap gain rates, but I try to minimize any ordinary rates overall. So anybody who's highly compensated, they can capture and have incredible tax benefits from investing in private real estate. However, there's something called the passive loss rules, meaning that, uh, uh, for example, in our, in our fund last year, somebody who invested a million dollars in fund four in 2019 received about 600,000 of ordinary losses allocated to them. That's, it was all paper losses. We still sent out a 5% rate of return on that money and, and on, that, on that million dollars, but yet we still created uh, 600,000 of losses. There's things that we do, and I could, I could send you an article sometime on that if you want, yeah. Peter, but um, the big thing is we do cost segregation studies, which means when we buy an asset, we go there and we analyze every piece of that asset uh, as far as what the depreciable life could be or should be. And so most real estate guys, actually, you think they would, but they don't. Most real estate guys don't do that because by the time they're trying to do their tax return, 
and they give their K-1 stuff, uh, the, the text, the stuff to the CPA to prepare the returns. It's February, March, whatever. And there isn't time to do a cost-sex study. You need to do a cost-sex study close to when you buy it. So like we're buying a deal in, in October, we're doing a cost-sex study in November. We're not waiting to the spring to do it. So cost segregations are critical to achieving the max tax benefits. That's a question that you guys can ask yeah. the real estate clients you invest with. Do they do cost segregation studies? But that's a big driver. Uh, it allows things like bonus depreciation, other short, shorter depreciation life assets. That's where we get the expense. Uh, bonus depreciation, all this is a simple word too, is that we can expense that purchase uh, overall. And so you, you want depreciation lives that are shorter in nature, meaning that I can expense that cost over a five-year, seven-year, 10-year, 15-year period, or even faster using bonus depreciation and overall. So the trick though, for highly compensated people, called people in the medical field or uh, anybody else who's got a, a big W-2 of some sort, um, the trick to capturing that, if we give you losses, you're actually not allowed to offset that against your, 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 your medical income unless you have other passive income. So the, the art of our business is one thing that we do, which is unique and people don't understand this, is that the triggering of capital gains, i.e. selling assets, if I sell an asset and I trigger capital gain, that capital gain will be used as passive capital gain income. And, and the power comes for highly compensated folks is when I sell an asset, when we sell an asset, and if I trigger a million dollars of cap gain, I have a neurosurgeon that has this exact fact pattern, triggered a million dollars of cap gain income, have more than a million dollars of ordinary losses sitting there, that a million cap gain, a million ordinary, that's to zero, right? So zero impact on your taxable income. But because I gave you a million passive gain, you're now allowed to use a million dollars of passive ordinary losses. If I didn't sell that asset, if I wasn't willing to sell that asset, and I never triggered the cap gain, the passive capital gain, you never be able to use those passive ordinary losses until some day long into the future. So to get that current benefit of that, the fact that we sell assets, ring the register, take our profits, actually enhances the, the after-tax rates of return. And a lot of real estate guys will talk about buy and hold, buy this asset, hold it forever kind of thing. You miss the opportunity to capture the maximum tax benefits if you do that. Plus you miss the opportunity to take your capital, redeploy it into better, smarter assets going forward. So I'm not a big buy and hold forever guy. Um, I believe in create value take your gains, take the money, go buy something that's a good investment again. And that creates the max benefits to our investment clients and to me personally. So that, that's the art of how we, how we do it. And again, it takes a long-term program of investing in private real estate. Like if somebody's investing for the first time today, you're going to build up a bunch of passive losses and there'll be a use available use in the future, but you won't really be able to use much of it until we start selling assets. Or if you invest with some other real estate guy and he's giving you ordinary gains that he really shouldn't be because he hasn't done cost seg studies, you could use our losses to offset his passive income, ordinary income, uh, that did somebody who wasn't disciplined, you, you know, using all the max tax benefits. But so you can offset passive losses against other passive income, whether it comes from, from somebody else. But in all of, all of our funds, you know, we have zero, less than zero ordinary income in our funds uh, because of being proactive and using every tool possible overall. So the tools are available if people take the time and effort to do it. And it can be done if, if you're disciplined and how you approach it. Now, do you think that somebody needs a specific real estate CPA to understand how to utilize this the best? Or is this something that's kind of already passed down to the investor? Any good tax, any tax CPA should know how to follow the passive loss rules. It's fundamental to, to tax preparation. 
Uh, and if your guy doesn't, you shouldn't be using them. <laughs> um, you know, they, they should understand that overall. There's one downside of investing in private real estate, and there's the cost of multi-state filing. One of the benefits of investing diversified is your, your protection of your capital, right? Getting diversified protects your equity. Some things in life counter each other. So diversification now in multiple states gives you safer investments, but now it causes the burden, the tax burden, of having to file tax returns in multiple states. Now, most tax software packages will handle that pretty easily, but there is a hassle factor and cost factor. So, you know, we have some solutions on how we suggest that uh, and how to handle that. But, um, you know, there, there's a cost of multi-state filing. And in some cases, that cost of filing could eat up some of the, the value of those tax benefits. So, for example, if you're investing a more modest amount, let's call it 50 to 100,000 in private real estate, and it's causing you multi-state filing, you're not really investing enough money to really capture a, a big dollar volume of tax benefits because you're going to lose some of that benefit from the cost of multi-state filing because you have to pay for to preparing your tax return in multiple states. You know, there, there's, um, there's a balancing act here somewhere, and you have to kind of find it, figure that out based on your personal tax situation with your tax CPA. But uh, yet you do have to be real about the cost of multi-state mm -hmm. filing because that is a real cost to consider in this. But there's, there are ways to mitigate that. Yeah, I've heard from some CPAs that, you know, they, they kind of approach those things differently. And I'm sure you guys will talk about it as well, too, with your clients. But in terms of do you file with negative, you know, negative returns, you file every single year, you stack it to the end. Have you heard of things like that? Yep. Where um, maybe you don't file every single time there's a negative return, but you wait till there's, a, there's an actual return, a cap gains return or something like that. You'll be able to file and offset it with some of the carried losses. Is that yeah, and most some states also won't. And again, I'm not your tax CPA yeah. guys. You got to get your tax advisors. Yeah. But many states require you to file those loss returns every year so that you can have the losses available to offset the gain year when the gain year happens. So, my personal opinion is you should be filing every year the loss returns in most states so that you protect those losses to be used in the future when you do have a gain year down the road. No, that's good advice. Uh, the, the other thing I want to ask is that I know from what I'm hearing right now from a lot of sponsors and we see a lot of deals and that sort of thing is everybody's calling themselves conservative, conservative in this time. So like, what are some of the measures that you would say that, again, I guess indicators that I can use as an investor when somebody says they're conservative, like what are actually some of those things that I should be looking for? You mentioned a couple of them, I think already about like loan to value and things like that, but uh, maybe just make it kind of like spelling it out, maybe two or three things I should be looking for. Rather than use the word conservative, let's talk about risk. It's like managing risk, right? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, you could be conservative in your assumptions. What we talk about is, is doing smart deals. When I say smart deals, it's deals where the assumptions that you're making are believable and achievable. You know, you have to ask your question because if you run a performa, small tweaks and assumptions will make the deal good or not so good, depending on what you assume. So the question is, you have to look at the key things that are driving the value creation in, your, in, the, in the performa. And are those assumptions that they're making believable and achievable and why? And so the, part of it, when you look at the, those assumptions, what does it look like compared to the market information? So if I'm looking at rent growth and I'm going to pick up $100 a month in rent by spending, uh, you know, $6,000 in improvements on, a, on an apartment unit, are there other assets in that sub-market that demonstrate improved units 
at the higher rents, yes or no. And that's determinable. You can do that research if you do your homework. And the local sponsor should be able to demonstrate to you that they're actually finding those higher rents overall. I generally believe in improving assets uh, will improve your rents unless you make really poor choices on what you select. But so again, back to managing risk. Are your assumptions believable and achievable? And again, we talk, our term we use internally here is smart deals, believable and achievable assumptions. You know, we talked about earlier about diversification that manages risk. You know, I'm a big believer in the fund versus taking individual syndications for most people. Um, now you can create your own diversification by investing in a lot of different syndications, right? That you can build diversification that way. You have to ask yourself, what's your skill level to analyze the deal and, and say, are those assumptions believable and achievable? Do you have the knowledge and experience to make that call as an investor overall? Lower leverage is big. You know, our target leverage is 65% loan to cost. Uh, the industry allows you from a debt perspective, you know, the 70, 75, 80% loan to cost. Uh, there, I see some deals out there that you can put in like a preferred equity piece uh, where they add equity that's ahead of the common equity. And so that uh, it's effectively more debt. Um, I saw one deal where the guy gave the preferred equity like a, a 16% rate of return. And then there were the, the, the common equity guys, the, the crowdfunding deal, it was showing these great IRRs. You know, you're going to make 16, 17% on your money. It was effectively 90% leverage. You had 80% So let's debt. explain this for people just to kind of spell it down. So before, right now, you normally on a, on a typical deal, you have financing from the bank, right? And then you have yep. the equity that comes in from investors. But you're saying now you're starting to see stuff where there's an additional layer in between. The preferred rates. equity. They call it preferred equity, but it's essentially, it's more debt, you're saying. It's essentially more debt because yeah. if, if the thing breaks bad, the bank gets paid first, preferred equity gets paid next, and the common guys get paid last. Uh -huh. So if there's only enough money to pay the bank and the preferred guys, you common guys get Zippo. So the preferred guy, in the example I gave, they can earn a 16% rate of return before you see your, your, your common equity back. And that's a hard bogey to hit 16%. Yeah. And it made the IRR look good. But again, that's the things, you know, as a, somebody looking at private risk investing, you know, I don't believe that max leverage is ever worth it. You know, it's just, you've worked hard to make your money in life. Preservation of capital is extremely important. And so my viewpoint is I'm going to do 65% leverage. I'm going to make less, a lower IRR. Who cares? I've saved my, if I, if I end up producing a 15% rate of return versus 17% rate of return, I'm very happy at 15% rate of return at 65% leverage versus taking the higher risk and earning 17%. You don't need it. It's not worth it. Um, in my opinion, uh, the last thing that I'd say is anything that we do is, we, we have a proactive strategy to grow our operating income some way, somehow. So I always call the, you know, the football analogy, the best, the best defense is strong offense. You know, if you have an offensive strategy that you're going to grow our operating income, I'll, I'll take one of our, our West Grove property where we, we took rents and we moved rents up uh, roughly 25% um, in the last three years. Now, if we had a fallback and rents dropped 10%, I'm already up 25% because I had a proactive strategy to grow operating income. So, any kind of downturn, I got, I got additional built-in cushion that cash flows worked the day we bought it. And now I've grown my gross income by 25%. I have that much more cushion for a recession coming along. So my viewpoint is lower leverage, diversification, proactive strategy to grow operating income, because that gives you more cushion when, when, the, when, the, when, the, doom, when the unexpected happens, like a COVID-19, those are, those are big. 
and then on the very beginning of the deal, doing smart deals, deals that have a believable and achievable assumptions, that's going to protect you when the unexpected happens. All right. Well, I think this has been a, a quick lesson in private real estate, <laughs> what to look out for, how to mitigate risk, these kind of things. And I really appreciate your time. I learned a ton. Uh, obviously, you guys are um, preparing and have prepared for this time. Yeah, it's obviously showing. You know, I wish you continued success. And thanks for your time. Really appreciate it. All right, Peter. Thank you for the time and take care. Okay. Thanks, Tim. Yeah, bye-bye. Enjoy the show. Let me know by dropping a review in the podcast app you're listening to us in. And if you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe. Are you part of our community yet? Join thousands of physicians who are also on this journey to creating their ideal lives through multiple streams of income. You can join us on our Facebook group, Passive Income Docs, and you can always learn more at our website, PassiveIncomeMD.com. Thanks again for allowing me to be a part of your journey. See you next time.